0: Hope you've been challenged as I have going through Proverbs and noticing how little subtle changes and decisions, uh, kind of the way that I posture myself early in life, can grow and harden over time and can turn into um, character and eventually fate or destiny. There's probably not an area where a person's life is more different from another person than in the area of prosperity. It's pretty easy to see even without looking for it, that there are some people in this world who do quite well and others who are struggling all the time. Some people seem to have a lot of money and some people never have enough money. Some are lots of friends and they mix in good company. And others are always in turmoil and drama in their relationships. And so I want to speak this morning about that wide difference, that chasm really between those who prosper and those who don't and I want to ask you how you think that happens. I I learned not long ago that there was study done by a guy named James Heckman. He's a Princeton grad who in the year 2000 was given uh, a Nobel Prize in economics for studying the disparity in income between the rich and the poor. Maybe like you or me, he was thinking that the difference between a person's Earnings over life was due largely to the job that they got, but what he discovered was that it was due to subtle things that you can't see. He said up to 50% of the difference between a person's lifetime earnings, the rich and the poor, is due not to the job that they had. It was due, he said, to unconscious skills such as attitudes, perceptions, um, and ideas. These are things that you can't tell the difference at first. When a person is small, you can't tell that one has better ideas or maybe better attitudes, but what he discovered is that the difference in attitudes and perceptions, the way that we come at life, harden over time and become, in fact, earning capacity. Most of these differences, he said, occur in a person's life by the time they are 18 years old. Let me say that differently, by the time we are 18, up to 50% of our lifetime earnings can be predicted by subtle currents that have already taken shape in a person's life. Gave me new appreciation (laughs) for this idea of invisible things that become visible over time. And by the time they become visible, the difference is so vast it's unmistakable. In Proverbs chapter 10, 22, the Bible says, The blessing of the Lord makes a person rich. Love that. And he adds no sorrow with it. So if you were to write, if you even track notes, you should write down, God wants me rich. Now this isn't the prosperity gospel. But the prosperity gospel has made people in church adverse to the idea of riches. You have to let God define rich. And therein lies the rub. We are, most of us, wired to seek prosperity. It's innate, it's primal. God put it deep within us. But because we live in a world that is always pulling in the other direction, we will find that even while we desire and seek prosperity, We consistently make decisions that go in the opposite direction. We say it again. We desire riches because it's innate. God put that desire. He wants us to do better instead of worse. But because we follow a different definition of riches or prosperity, we are constantly making decisions that war against real prosperity, and we end up in ruin. So you have to allow God to determine the definitions or we will never get the thing that we are wired to want in the first place. There's no point hiding it. There's no shame in saying God wants me to be prosperous, but we have to allow Him to define the terms. Because if we pursue the things that the world keeps offering, it will lead in the opposite direction. Take, for instance, Jack Whitaker. This whole week I've been thinking the curious case of Jack Whitaker. He's 55 years old. He owns his own construction company. He's driving home one night, stops at a party store, buys a lotto ticket. When he gets home, he checks the numbers when they're announced and he discovers that he lost. He shrugs and says to himself, that's no surprise, I never win anything. But the following day, on Christmas Eve, he discovers that the numbers have been misreported. When he looks at his lotto ticket, he now learns that he won the whole jackpot, $315 million all to himself. Look at your eyes. He decides to take the one-time cash option of 170 million. By the time the government takes their share, he goes home 113 million dollars richer. Now he doesn't have to work. <laughs> He may own his own construction company, but he's never in it. He promptly sits down and writes the first check to his local church because he's a devoutly religious man for $11 million. That's his tithe. He then starts the Jack Whitaker Foundation, which exists to help clothe and feed the poor in rural areas of West Virginia. After that is when it started to get off the tracks. He went back to the store where he bought the ticket and bought the lady who sold him the ticket, a brand new house, a new Dodge Ram truck, and gave her $50,000 in cash. He bought himself a brand new Hummer, bought his favorite granddaughter, Brandy, a brand new Corvette, and promised her a weekly allowance of $2,000. Now look at your eyes. You're like, man, I wish my daddy was named Jack. (laughs) Brandy has a boyfriend named Jess who has a drug problem. She uses her $2,000 a week to fund his drug problem until they find Jess dead inside of one of Jack Whitaker's empty houses. Brandy spirals into depression and becomes more and more dependent on drugs herself, until within a few months, they find her lifeless body wrapped in plastic and thrown in a dumpster just behind a place called Scary Creek. Jack now spirals into depression. He takes to drinking and to gambling into driving. He rams his Hummer into a barricade and totals it. When the police come to give him a breathalyzer, he refuses. They promptly arrest him. And when he is in court, he is obnoxious and belligerent with the judge. Within four years, he's bankrupt. So he goes to Atlantic City and tries to gamble to get his money back. He is arrested again for writing bogus checks that total $1.5 million. He says to Martin Bashir in ABC News, I curse the day that I ever won the lotto. I wish I never would have bought that ticket. And why, said Bashir, and he said, because I don't like the kind of man that I have become. Neither did his wife. Soon after that, she divorced him after 42 years of marriage. This is why I call this The Curious Case of Jack Whitaker because this guy has hit the jackpot in everything the American dream considers prosperity. Face it, when I said a few moments ago that God wants you prosperous probably one of the first things you were thinking is that God wants you to grow in abundance. God wants me to have more. And so it felt to some of you great relief and to others for you disingenuous but it's that American thing inside of us that interprets prosperity as automatically an abundance in possessions but Jack Whitaker is an example of how someone can be suddenly infused with a lot of abundance but it becomes for him a curse the question is why So I went back to the book of Proverbs and began to study what prosperity looks like in the book of Proverbs. And you won't be surprised, but in Proverbs, it's far more complex than simply abundance. Time out. Prosperity in Proverbs includes abundance. So if you're one of the anti-rich, you know, who are thinking that it never means more... (laughs) In Proverbs, it flat means more. Let's put it on the screen. It calls for abundance. Proverbs says, a faithful man will abound with blessings, 2820. The righteous will flourish like a green leaf. But keep it up there. It also includes serenity. Because God increases our possessions, it gives us a sense of security or contentment with what we have. Now, you can be discontent even with possessions, but when you put abundance next to contentment or security, it leads to serenity. A rich man's wealth is his strong city." And like a high wall protecting him. Part of prosperity in Proverbs is relationships. He says wealth brings many new friends. Part of it in Proverbs is integrity. Proverbs says ill-gotten treasures are of no value but Righteousness, there it is, or integrity, delivers us from death. Part of prosperity in Proverbs is industry. It talks repeatedly about working with our hands and how that gives us an abundance. So when I saw this, I saw prosperity as a constellation of things, not just one thing. Now watch what this does. It explains what happened to Jack Whitaker. The moment he got a sudden infusion with wealth... It didn't help his relationships, it hurt them. It didn't make him more industrious, it made him less industrious. It didn't increase his integrity, it lowered his integrity. It did not give him a sense of contentment. It gave him a voracious appetite to buy, 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 and buy. So this is why at the end of this time, Whitaker looks at the ticket and says, I wish I never would have gotten this because it only gave me an increase in abundance, but it threw into imbalance the other parts of my life. Now please look at those five things again. Abundance integrity, relationships, industry, and serenity. And please note that all five of these are scalable to whatever income a person has. Please note that when we keep trying to grow in abundance... Without also growing in the other four areas, it will throw us into poverty. We will become rich, but rich in poverty because our life is out of balance. It explains. Why studies done in the U.K. and the U.S. over the last 10 to 15 years have shown that a sudden infusion of wealth, whether through a big inheritance or whether through a sweepstakes or a lotto, a sudden infusion of wealth ruins a person more than half of the time. Robert Frank, writing for Wall Street Journal, said... It basically does nothing for your relationships. It only exaggerates whatever shape the rest of your life is already in. By seeking more, but seeking it in an imbalanced way, we may be asking God for a curse... In fact, we may, most of us in the room, already have the income we can handle. Because God, who knows all things, knows the attention we give to the other four. So this is a wake-up call to me personally, to say, when you are discontent with your salary or with the stuff in your house or the stuff that you have, learn to grow in other areas too, or you will become lopsided. The world will pull us toward abundance. But proverbs speaks of balance. Are you still with me? Yes. Please be with me. <laughs> There's another current in proverbs, um, and it is it's it's a current of desire. So, while proverbs says to us, God wants you to be prosperous. Part of being prosperous in Proverbs is a spirit of gratitude and contentment with what we have. And we all know, do we not, that that has nothing to do with income. But there is another current in, pro- in, this, in the culture that keeps pulling us toward desire. Let me define that. The culture consistently, daily, encourages me to get more than I earn, to spend more than I get, to borrow more than I can pay back, to risk more than I can afford, to lose. Whenever I get sweepstakes stuff and play the lotto stuff, man, I'm at a Colts game six weeks ago and they're doing a raffle, and the winner gets half of the earnings, don't buy raffle tickets, could care less, till I look up on the scoreboard and you watch those numbers go up. And by the end of the game, I find out that the dude that won's gonna take home more than $18,000. I'm thinking to myself, how cool would it be to walk into my house tonight and go, baby, look at this, man. I got 18 grand. You know what she'd say? What'd you do wrong? Some of you play the lotto, I know you do, with that same kind of drive. How can I get more than I earn and get it fast? And yet Proverbs consistently warns us against getting rich too quickly. But ignoring it, we think I'll be the exception. Proverbs reminds me to spend less than I make, and yet the culture consistently encourages me to spend more than I make. We watched a basketball game a couple years ago, and I was just intrigued by this, so I, I videoed the whole game, and then I fast-forwarded through the advertisements, and I discovered at the end of one NCAA basketball game, there were almost 300 advertisements in a single game. In fact, you will have seen almost a million advertisements by the time you're 20 years old. Drive up the bypass, look at it. I think they sold billboards by the dozen. And you are bombarded with more and more advertisements. And it has a subtle effect, doesn't it? It's this idea of saying what you have is okay, but just imagine. So I'm watching a game a couple weeks ago, and I see this advertisement with Matthew McConaughey driving a black Lincoln. You seen this? He got that raspy voice, that kind of cool look on his face, you know. And I look out the window and I see my 2007 Honda Accord. <laughs> it's paid for, but it is now 10 years old. And, and then I look at the TV and then I look at the car, look at the TV and back at the car, and I start thinking to myself, how cool would I look in a black Lincoln? My wife has a version of this. She watches the house channel. I call it house porn. (laughs) Please don't be offended. It's too late for some of you. She just rolls her eyes. I say because the the house porn channel, um, it has the same effect on women in their houses as pornography has on men in their sex lives. (laughs) Every time you watch it, you become more discontent with what you have. Well, come on, that's good preaching. <laughs> so there's a direct correlation between watching that stuff and being discontent. But if you pay attention to the advertisements, this is a classic example of this people. And we, if you live in America, you can't get out of it. The current is always there. It's always around your feet. You'll have to resist it. It advertises a life of prosperity, but if you think about it, it is actually pulling you in the opposite direction. Do you know how uncool I would be in a black Lincoln? Because it would change my standard of living, and it would change so many other things about me, and that would make me uncool, not cool. But the advertisement is saying if you get in this, it will actually improve your prosperity when in fact it will require sacrifices on my part that will lower my prosperity. The same thing is true with the Houseborn Channel. We watched it together. It's a bonding moment in our house. And like a week ago, one of the couples walked out of a really nice house and the guy looked at the woman and said, I really love this house, but if we buy it, we will be house poor. Now, one more time, it pulls us with visions of a better life, but if you look at it, what it requires in return is actually a worse life. I do not know of a way to snap This insatiable drive for more, except to occasionally stop and just say, thank you. No, say, it is enough. And I don't mean just before meals. I'm talking not about a prayer. I'm talking about a change in lifestyle that leads to contentment. I'm talking about buying with cash more than you spend with credit, about not racking up more than $10,000 debt on the average American credit card. Think about that. It's not racking up more than a month than you can pay off in a month. I'm talking about using it longer and fixing it ourselves, wearing it out instead of always replacing data plans and cell phones because it isn't the we all have our versions of this, do we not? 20 sums look at 60 year olds and wonder why they buy Buicks every two years, but 60 year olds wonder why 20 year olds need a new data plan every six months. It's the same current. It pulls us to say what you have is not sufficient. Bow your heads for a moment. We're not done, but bow your heads for a moment. Jesus, now we can talk about this all day, but we know, we know in the quiet moments that what we have is a gift from you. It is not ingenuity or ambition or perseverance or anything else that we give it credit for. God... It is you. There are people in this world who are far more creative and have less. They work far longer and have less. What we have is a gift from you, and our hearts are grateful. No, our hearts are grateful. It is enough. Oh God, make it enough. <laughs> Help us to fight the current and to stay in one of gratitude in Jesus' name. Say amen. Yeah, thank you, guys. Let me give you one more current. Prosperity in the book of Proverbs is generosity. There's no getting around this. In the book of Proverbs, the people who are the most prosperous are the ones who are the most generous. A faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will get only trouble. Don't weary yourself trying to get rich. Why waste your time? Riches can disappear as though they had wings. Time after time after time in Proverbs... We are encouraged to take our wealth and give it, listen closely, not only to our kids. Wesley said, why would you do that and give them the very same trouble you have? We are encouraged to give to the poor. But there is a counter current in our culture of greed. There's probably a nicer word for it. I just can't think of it. And greed, I am learning, you guys, is not simply the desire to get rich. Greed in our culture, is an inordinate attention to, craving for, or trust in material things. I'll say that again. It's an inordinate attention to, a craving for, or a trust in material things. Listen, again, we can be greedy at all levels. In my opinion, the greediest I should say, the greatest challenge against greed comes not from the rich. There's a huge anti-rich bias in our culture right now. Yet they pay over 70% of all taxes. Some have even argued, I'll give you the figure if you want it, in European countries that entire tax structures have been built in Europe not around equality but around envy. It's envy of the rich and sweeping tax structures in the name of equality is how we get it back. Now, you may or may not agree with that, but I think this is an edit. You can chuck it in a minute. There's a huge anti-bias. But it is not the rich who struggle the most. It's probably the middle class. It's those of us, you in the same class that I'm in, that have just enough to look at wealth and think it is possible. If we were poor, it would be too far out of reach. But because we're in the middle, we think, you know, just maybe just a little more. And it creates an inordinate attention to material things. In our house... Uh, That is evident in the way that I give gifts. When I give gifts, I cannot, I'm a Dutch, and so I'm tight. And the second I give the gift to Lori, I will immediately say, she'll go, oh, this is amazing. (gasps) Thank you. I'll go, I got a really good deal. (laughs) And I want her to go, So not only are you generous, you're smart. But what she says is, that's really sick. (laughs) What is that you have to mention the price when you give something? That's an inordinate amount of attention to price. Her version of this was to get inside the coupon club. A few years ago, they were driving to Fort Wayne. To get groceries I mean I'm just saying 45 minutes because they triple coupon and so I knew things had gotten out of hand when she'd come home every Monday night with bags of groceries and set them on the table and tell me the price $26.13 I'd say for what she said the whole shooting match what Then she had the bags, like, divvied up. See that bag? $3.15. See that bag? $6.28. See that bag? Everything in it is free. And I started thinking to myself, this ain't shopping. This is a sport, and that's the score. (laughs) She had even taken, she was buying all of these boxes of cereal. Cereal we don't even eat just boxes of cereal because it was free and then she put it downstairs in the basement in the pantry and she had taken the time to write free 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 on every one of these boxes now she's wanting me to say oh you're not only a good shopper you're so smart and i was saying you are sick It is an inordinate amount of attention to stuff, to material things. And I do not know of a way to snap the power of money except to give it away. So we started giving all this cereal away to college students, they'll eat anything. We were dealing it like cards. Here's a full house. And I think if you want to prosper, I think you will have to get to a place where you learn generosity. When you become generous, when you give, You participate in the nature of God himself because God is a giver. So you talk about holiness all you want, but until our holiness is as generous as God the giver, then it isn't fully developed yet. You may need to start with wherever you're at and ask yourself, how do we increase this? Here's what we do in our house, and this is just our house, and you guys can have your own discussions. Because it is my nature to be stingy. I mean, when I was a kid, I would put $10 in the offering plate and take out five. I'm not making this up. Sick. Because I only owed God five. So it is not my nature to do this. We have had to create disciplines, mostly for my sake, early in our marriage, where we set aside 10% and give that to the Lord. Now let me identify that. Again, in our house, it's 10% because in our thinking that's consistent with the Old Testament idea of a tithe. Now again, there are scholars in the room, I know this, and you will argue, some of you, against the 10% rule. And in my opinion, you're free to do that as long as you negotiate up. Don't use your smartness to negotiate down. Don't diss it until you pass it. So we start with 10 and we bring it to the place where there's an altar. We don't invest it in a Christian cause. We invest it in the place where there's an altar. Now again, this is just us. So we don't give that first part according to what we believe in, because it isn't the believing in it that sanctifies it. In our thinking, it's the altar. The altar is between earth and heaven, Whatever gets put on the altar gets sanctified. So it's not for us a matter of supporting the church or believing in the church or liking what the church is doing. For us, it's simply a matter of giving to the Lord, not the church, what is His. That's our rule. So we start with 10%. That becomes for us the training wheels. When I was making less than $11,000 full-time, The first year of our marriage, we were still doing this because we knew if we didn't create the discipline, we would never get there internally. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart follows. He doesn't say, believe in it with your heart and then follow with your money. He says, do with your money what you want your heart to believe and you will end up following your treasure. So, knowing that, we said, let's fund things that Stingy Steve does not even believe in. And sure enough, you guys, over the years, I have learned to believe in things I once only funded. And I'm happy. I'm better for that. I'm more prosperous for that. So with that 10% as training wheels, then we started to up it 1% every few years. My goal is 23%. I think that's the target. And we're not there, but we're a lot more than 10%. After we put that 10% on the altar that's when we start looking for other things that we believe. It's not what I believe in. It's what I believe God is doing in this world. God is active. God is busy in that organization. And so we channel some of the money that way and give to a myriad of places at the end of the year. What you're hearing me say is that God wants to make you prosperous And part of prosperity is opening the hands as much as cupping them. I've had a real uh, sensitivity this week as I studied prosperity in the book of Proverbs. I've had deep convictions about our city, how it holds people in poverty. But most of my convictions have come about me. I believe God is wanting to change me. Not even you. Me. I'm just wanting you to join. Me.